Good morning for Hill Church. Our scripture reading this morning is found in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Please stand for the word of the Lord. Jesus calls Levi. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. And uh, hey, happy Fourth of July to all you guys. Happy Independence Day. Uh, my name is Brian Martinez. I'm the student's minister here at Foothill Church. I'm excited to be with you guys. And uh, kiddos, again, we're, we're excited to have you. Parents, if you're worried, like, oh my gosh, my kid is going to ruin the message, uh, don't, don't worry. I think my kiddo already has that covered. Uh, we're, uh, I got my kids right here. And as long as he doesn't run on stage, I think we're okay. So for you guys, uh, no worries. But hey, would you, would you pray with me first? And we'll jump in this morning. Father, thank you. God, thank you for the, the thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gifts that you have given us. You are a good and gracious God. And Lord, this morning, as we come before you, I pray that it would be your words. I know if it's anything just, just of, of me, of, of humans, it's worthless. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, hey, I'm, I'm curious. Uh, Fourth of July is a, is a fun holiday, uh, but there tends to be two, uh, two big pushing factors. Uh, it, the things that you're most excited for, food or fireworks. So just at a show of hands, if you're more about the fireworks, I'd love to see it. Okay. And the food? Yeah, my people. Yeah, all right. <laughs> um, so my, my, wife, my wife is sitting right there, and uh, the first time that my wife, Steph, heard me say the words, I love you, was about three months after we met. And uh, high schoolers, that's way too soon. Uh, that's, that's too soon. That's creepy. But, but don't worry. I actually didn't say it to her. Um, this, was, uh, this was finals week in college of our freshman year. I uh, just gone through my first semester of real college stuff and just had my first final. I think I barely passed. And I remember after all that, I was starving. I was so hungry. And so this is just when Steph and I were, were starting to hang out and she was starting to be less annoyed with me and be more okay with me. And so we went to In-N-Out and we got a burger. And I remember something about this burger was the most majestic thing I'd ever seen. And so I sat down at the table ne- uh, sitting next to her and I looked at it at my, my double-double animal style with, uh, with animal fries. And I looked and I just said, I love you. And Steph looked up, and in that moment, she was like, this is kind of weird, yeah. But it was, it was delicious. In fact, the burger was, was so good, I actually saved the receipt here. I have it framed up in my house. Uh, it's just, just something to remember at all times. Just kidding, Ethan made that for me. Um, <laughs> but I truly, truly love food so much. And again, I know that's not a surprise uh, to any of you. But there's something really special about food, right? Um, like, we know we need food to survive, obviously. We need to eat or else we'll die, but it's more than that, right? Uh, there's lots of stuff that we need to survive, but none of them are, are as communal as eating. We need to sleep. It's not something you're really doing together as a party, unless you have little kiddos and they come in the bed at night. We need to breathe. 
Uh, we need to go to the bathroom, but again, not something you want to do as a community. Um, but there's something about eating. And I think if, we're, if we know this, right, we're being honest, we know it's more than just we're hungry. There's something about food that like, it touches our, our soul, right? We eat uh, when we're sad. We eat to celebrate. You guys are going to have barbecues later today, probably. We eat when we want to get to know someone, right? You ever meet somebody new and you're like, hey, I want to get to know you. Let's get lunch. Eating is often this intimate act. And who we eat with says a lot about us. And you know who else apparently loves eating? Uh, kiddos, this is time for the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. Jesus apparently loves to eat. See, one of the ways that he describes his ministry, this is how Jesus describes what he did. He said that the Son of Man, which is one of his favorite names for himself, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. The Pharisees, the religious elite who didn't like Jesus, they actually called him a glutton and a drunkard. In, her, in their eyes, Jesus ate way too much. Uh, Robert Harris says this, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal at a meal or coming from a meal. Jesus loved to chow down. He loved to eat. So we got the idea for this series from a book uh, by Tim Chester called A Meal with Jesus. And in this book, he talks about how Jesus's mission was to seek and save the lost, but how he did that revolved around the dinner table. He ate and drank with people. He came to seek and save sinners, but the way he did that was through a shared meal. Eating and drinking, this was something central to Jesus' life and central to his ministry. And every meal, in a way, tells a story. It's evidence of what you value, right? You eat healthy food, you eat unhealthy food. That kind of says something about you, who you eat with. Um, and so this next month, what we're going to do, we're starting this new series, and we're going to take the next five weeks or so, and we're going to be looking at different stories of Jesus and meals he had with people. And we're going to see what does this show us about who Jesus is and what he values. And so this morning, you just heard the story of Levi the tax collector. And we're going to look at this dinner party at Levi's house to help us answer the question, what does the grace of God look like? So kiddos, guys, adults, if you're taking notes, that's a big question this morning. What does the grace of God look like? And to kind of help us put on the same footing, uh, maybe you've heard this analogy before, but I want you guys to imagine that, uh, that I'm driving, or, or kids imagine that your parents are driving. And uh, again, maybe you've heard this before, but imagine that I'm, I'm speeding, I'm going way too fast, and I get pulled over by a cop, and, uh, and he's like, hey, you're going way too fast. And so justice here, justice would be me getting what I deserve. Justice is that cop writing me a ticket. Mercy is me not getting what I deserve. So it's the cop letting me off with a warning. And grace is me getting something good that I don't deserve. So it's the cop being like, not only am I not going to give you a ticket, but dude, let's go get sushi right now. So that's kind of what it is. Like You do not deserve this. Kids, maybe you guys have had something like this where you get caught and instead of bringing down the hammer, your parents are like, you know what, forget it. Let's go to Chuck E. Cheese. Probably not. But that's kind of the picture of grace or getting something you don't deserve. And we could also say this, that grace is God's saving power for the undeserving sinner. And so I want to move along quickly this morning. I know we have things that we want to do, but I want us to, to really look at grace, 
Because if you've been in the church for a while, or maybe even not, grace is one of those words that just kind of floats around. We use it often without really thinking about what it means, maybe. And so I want to look at four things about grace. And here's the first thing that I want us to see. First thing that we need to remember about grace, and that is Jesus gives grace to the worst of sinners. So look with me in verse 27. After this, he, being Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So this verse starts with after this. And the question we need to ask is after what? What is he talking about? We need to connect this. So this is right after uh, the people lowered this guy who was paralyzed into a house. Maybe you've heard that story before. This guy who was completely paralyzed. He couldn't move, but he wanted to know Jesus. And so his friends took him to the top of a building. They cut a hole in the roof and they lowered him in. And Jesus sees this guy and he says, hey, your sins are forgiven. But the Pharisees, the religious elite of the time, the the big uh, important people, they didn't like that. They got really angry at that. And so to prove his point, Jesus says, okay, you're you're healed. And he heals him of his disease and he gets up and he walks. And right here, this is really early on in his ministry where we are. A few verses ago, he just called his first disciples of the 12. So what's happening here is that Jesus is just starting to go public. He's establishing his ministry. He's showing everyone right now what he's about. I am Jesus. This is what I'm about. He's setting the themes for the rest of Luke and for the rest of his ministry. And so we need to see that who he brings with him, who he calls to be his disciples, his closest friends, his main posse, this says so much about him. Who would God, who would the Messiah, who would the Son of Man associate with? And it is the worst of people, the most hated of people. What Jesus is doing right here is he's about to make a huge statement by calling Levi, who is later known as Matthew, the the book of Matthew. That's him. Jesus is doing something really profound here. And so in order to see that, we have to really see and understand who Matthew is. Um, We see here that he is a tax collector. And this is really big in the culture. Now, Uh, Let's be honest, the IRS is probably nobody's favorite government institution, Uh, but there's something deeper going on with tax collectors here. They were hated by the people, by the Jewish people. So what this was is that we remember Israel was under the rule of the Roman Empire. Uh, Kids, if you like Star Wars, they're kind of like the the stormtroopers, right? The Galactic Empire. And so they're under the rule of the Roman Empire. And part of the reasons they didn't like that, besides not having their freedom, is that they had to pay taxes. But the thing that the Romans did is they employed other Jewish people. And so these were other people that you knew. And these Jewish people, they actually didn't get paid by the Romans. They got paid by collecting taxes from people and actually taking more than they were supposed to. So if the tax was like $20, then when you came and they collected the tax from you, they would say the tax was actually, they were supposed to say something like $25. But really what happened, they would say 30, 40, 100, $150. They would take so much money, but the people had no idea what the real tax was. It wasn't posted on a website anywhere, and so they just had to pay what they thought was due to them. And so people hated tax collectors because these were people that they grew up with, most likely in, in villages and people they knew. So imagine your best friend growing up is now taking ridiculous amounts of money from you every Tuesday and Thursday. These people were so hated that they were actually not allowed in the synagogue. They weren't allowed to go to church with them. 
Also, if you read your Bible, you'll notice something funny. People will say, uh, when they talk about Jesus and who they hang out with, they say he's with sinners and tax collectors. They actually separate the two. They had their own separate category. They were that bad. Worse than just sinners. It was a terrible thing to be. You were a tax collector. Now, now bear with me here, because I really want us to get in the weeds of this. Again, maybe you've heard this before, this tax collector thing, but I want us to truly, truly see how despised these people were, because we have to understand what Jesus is doing. So there's actually several forms of tax collectors, but you guys didn't know on the 4th of July, you would get a nice study in uh, 2,000-year-old tax collecting. Uh, But here it is. The first one is called a goodbye, a goodbye. Uh, if you're not old enough to drive yet, repeat with me, goodbye. 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 Nice to see you. Uh, so what these were, these were the chief tax collectors. This is what Zacchaeus was. So these guys covered the normal taxes. These were things you'd expect, like land tax, income tax, if you brought fruit or, or wine. Usually this was kind of like a, a fixed thing. You know what you had to pay. These guys were still hated, but it wasn't that big of a deal because normally they, they were feasibly could be called businessmen. There was also a little bit of distance. You didn't see these guys all the time. So they were nobody's favorite, but they weren't the worst. The next kind of tax collector was called a mocus. These were the smaller operation. They were far less regulated, uh, but they taxed everything. Literally, every, they were nickel and dime people. So you cross a bridge, you pay a tax. You send a letter, you pay a tax. When I was studying this, I even found there was something called the cart axle tax and a wheel tax. So I don't know how they enforced that, but they had a tax for everything. But getting further in this, there's even two kinds of these guys. There's a great mocus and a little mocus. So a great mocus owned a big tax operation, and they had little mocuses who worked for them. And here's where we really get to what we're talking about. The little mocuses would be stationed in the offices and on the roads. And these guys were the most hated of all tax collectors because there's no distance there's no, um, there's no pretense of them being businessmen. These guys would be there uh, on the roads wherever you were going, and they could stop you at any time and force you to pay ridiculous taxes that you knew were way overblown. But if you couldn't pay, they actually had enforcers there with them who would break your legs if you couldn't do it. This is a legit mafia operation. And so people hated these guys, these little mocuses. And this was Levi. One of the most hated people in all of the culture, parents, adults, I I want you guys to think about this for a second. Who is the person that society hates most? The people that would get canceled today, the scumbags. This is Levi sitting at a tax booth, a mobster, a scum. And this is who Jesus goes to. And this is who Jesus says, come and follow me. I want you. I want you in my group. The religious leaders and the Talmud, the kind of the rule book for the time, they said that you were allowed to lie and even con tax collectors. These guys were forbidden to give testimony in court because it was just known that they were less than human and they were automatic liars. They could not tell the truth. And again, Jesus says, follow me. He makes a call on his life. And you know what's amazing? Levi goes. He just leaves. He leaves everything. His status, his money, his shame, his sin, he left it all because Jesus called him. People would have been amazed by this. We're amazed by this. Because if if we're honest, at least I, I think sometimes that the worst of us will not follow Jesus. But this is exactly who he came for. 
Do you ever doubt that certain people could ever come to know Jesus, could ever change their life? Sometimes we start thinking that way until we're like, I don't, I don't even bother talking to that coworker or that uncle or that bully at school. There's no way they would ever change. There's no way they'd ever listen. No way they'd even come to church if I invite them. But Jesus came for all. Everyone has the disease that only he can cure. And maybe you're on the other side of this. Maybe you're not looking down at the tax collectors. Maybe you're realizing, man, that's, that's me. Maybe you feel kind of like Peter did earlier in this chapter when Jesus calls him and Peter looks at him and he says, Lord, I'm way too much of a sinner. Aren't I too far gone for you? And the answer that grace has for Peter's, for tax collectors, for us is no. A resounding no. Jesus came for us. Jesus came for the worst of people. And Matthew, sorry, Levi knew where he stood. He's a criminal, a terrible human being, no redeeming quality. Disney would not make a movie about him like Maleficent or Cruella de Vil. Like there was no redeeming quality for him. He was truly scandalous, and yet Jesus shows him grace. The next thing we need to see is that grace changes the worst of sinners. Look with me in, uh, in verse 29, or 28. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So this is the story of how Jesus changed Levi. And you know how we, uh, we see that? You know how we know that he was truly saved? We get this radical change in his life. You may have heard it before that nobody ever really changes. And maybe that's true in some things. I feel like I'm always going to love my same in and out order. I'm never going to change it. Um, but in some cases, and in fact, in grace, that is not true. When grace truly gets a hold of someone, it changes you. So there, there's two parts to Levi's radical change here. And the first is that he completely leaves his old life behind. We just talked about how Matthew was, was one of the worst people in everyone's eyes. But he still had things that not a lot of people had. He had power as a tax collector. In fact, he had wealth. He had a lot of wealth. And as hated as he was, as soon as he leaves that job, people will grab it up in a second. They will not hesitate to take his old job, to take his old life. And he will never have another opportunity at that generational wealth ever again. But that doesn't matter. Jesus called him, and so he went. Very quickly, Levi sees something that I think sometimes we struggle with, that our, our old lives are not compatible with following Jesus. His old life as a tax collector is not compatible with following Jesus, and so he had to make a choice. Does he stay in this life of earthly gain but eternal ruin, or does he die to everything he is for the sake of knowing Jesus? This is what Paul talks about in Colossians 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Following Jesus requires change. We cannot walk in sin and still serve him. We have to die to our old ways. The Bible makes this really clear. And what, what is that? Our, our old desires, our, our old lives, maybe sins that you've been holding on to, habits that you've had. Maybe this is relationships that you've had that are bringing you further away from God. When we choose to walk with him, 
we have to say no to those things. And thankfully, thankfully, we don't do this alone. It's by the grace of God that these changes happen. It's through something that we call, it's a big word called sanctification. And all this word means is it's a process of becoming more like Jesus. And this process takes a lifetime. Levi's change, actually, it it may look immediate to you. Maybe you're reading this, you get kind of intimidated that Levi would just leave something like that. You're like, I don't know if I could do that. But we see that that God's grace, it, it works. Sometimes it works immediately, but sometimes it works over time. And we have some evidence here to think that this was likely the the culmination of a work that God was doing in Levi's heart for a long time. They're in this place called Capernaum when all this is happening. And Jesus actually spent a lot of time there preaching and teaching. And no doubt, Levi would have heard of Jesus. And he would have heard of some of the things he said. And he probably had seen Jesus before and seen him speak. And so finally, when Jesus comes to him and he makes that call in his life, he just couldn't resist anymore. And, And maybe that's some of you. Maybe some of you have been feeling his call in your life, whether it's to finally put down the tax booth and to follow him, or maybe you have been following him for a while, but there's things that you're just holding on to. There's old things in your life like, I can't let this go. For some reason, this is too precious, too sacred. You're trying to keep the old life afloat. And, and I pray that we realize what Levi realized, is that nothing compares Paul talked about this in Philippians. He said, I count everything as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus. And and I want to say something real quick. I talked about this earlier when we talk about the word grace. I think it has a little bit of a a marketing issue, I guess you could say. Because what do you think of when you think of the word grace? Maybe you think of like saying grace around the dinner table. I always think of a a grace period uh, when writing essays because I was always late and writing essays, so I'd always ask for it for a grace period. But really, when the Bible talks about grace, it's this different idea. Honestly, I think we kind of have a soft view of, of grace and of this word. But how the Bible talks about it, the evidence that we see here is that grace is not this kind of fluffy, easygoing, I'll just show that guy some grace. Grace is the power of God to save and change the worst of people to take us out of the miry clay, to completely change a life. Grace is power. It is by the grace of God that Levi changed and walked away from something that a lot of us probably would not have the strength to walk away from. Grace is the power of God. And so the second thing that I want us to see with this kind of change, the second part to Levi's change is this, what he does next, and it's remarkable. He holds a feast, a dinner party, And he invites all of his friends. So what Levi does is he leaves his old life. He leaves those ways behind, but he doesn't leave the people behind. He invites them to come with him. He goes to his old people, his old friends, the same scumbags that he was, and he says, let it go. Come and follow Jesus with me. I need other people to know about this amazing power. Another another mark of grace enacted in your life is the desire to share it. And now I'm going to close with this. I just want to give us two reminders. We talked a bit about what grace looks like. And now two quick reminders for us, for people here in church who may be somewhat familiar with this. Here's the first thing is don't be too good for the worst of sinners. Look at verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumble at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So 
Again, we'll go quickly through this, but the religious elite, the Pharisees, they saw this. They saw Jesus having a feast with Levi and all these terrible people. And, and real quick, if you're wondering how they saw this, this is just kind of how things were set up back in the day. Lucas will talk about this a little bit more uh, next week, but they didn't really have backyards. They're all kind of in the front on the street. And so people could clearly see that Jesus was hanging out with these despicable people, and they got upset at that. But here's the thing. The Pharisees could have been the people to lead Levi and his friends to God, to lead them to salvation, but they completely missed it because they were so concerned with preserving how they looked, with preserving their good, nice, clean life, that they forgot what God was about. How do we, do we do that? Are, are we good at inviting the ones that don't fit into dinner? The little league coach who gets too political maybe, the really annoying coworker, the kids at school that we don't like, we have a tendency to avoid these people that don't fit into our life, but that is not the kingdom picture. The kingdom picture is we bring people in. But look what they're doing here. They're, they're grumbling. They're upset. And, and what brought them here? What brought the Pharisees to a point that they actually despised people? That they had no sense of forgiveness, no sense of grace for other people? Well, I think they, they forgot this, and this is the last point for us. They forgot this, that we are the worst of sinners. Look at me in verse 31. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Who's the sick here? So they go to Jesus and they complain, and his answer is this. Look, I'm, I'm a doctor. I didn't come for those who are well. I came for those who are sick. But we need to ask the question, who is he talking about? Who is the sick? And we know from scripture that he's talking about all of us. For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Pharisees included. Later on, Jesus addressed these people, these self-righteous uh, people who look good on the outside. And he says, you guys are whitewashed tombs. Beautiful looking on the outside, but on the inside, you're filled with, with dead bones. It's dead, it's rotting, it's gross. John MacArthur says this, the Christian life is not for good people. It's for sinners. We have a tendency to equate, and this is just kind of a cultural thing that's happened. We have a tendency to equate good Christian values with kind of this like good upper class, American, good old, old, old you know, you kind of know what I'm saying, like this whole thing right here. And that's just not, that's not biblical. We are the worst of sinners. And it's hard for us to know that, right? Like if we ask, are you sick or, or are you righteous? See, the, there was a big reason why the Pharisees and the religious elite, why they hated Jesus. Because he would call out sin and they would say, how dare you? How dare you come to me and say that I need a savior? To say that there's something wrong with me. I am righteous. I am a good person. What Jesus is saying right here, though, is as long as you hold that attitude, I can't do anything for you because you're refusing to see that you have a cancer, that you have a sickness. And maybe you're thinking, Brian, how am I the worst of sinners? I get these, maybe, you know, I get the tax collectors for sure. I get maybe the religious elite, they're really arrogant and, and, and mean. But how am I, you said all of us are the worst of sinners. How does that track? Especially if you're a kid, right? I haven't done anything. Like, how am I the worst of sinners? 
Um, there was one analogy and, uh, that, that I heard a while back. This was helpful for me. Because usually when you talk about this stuff, the comparison that always comes up without fail is, I'm not as bad as Hitler. I'm like, yeah, okay, great. Yeah, you're not as bad as Hitler. But this is kind of the trick that we play, this trick of comparison. And so uh, somebody asked me this once, and, and it's been helpful for me. Um, you guys know who, who Shaq is? Shaquille O'Neal, famous basketball player. He played for the Lakers and like 20 other teams. Uh, he's, he's super, super tall. He's seven foot two. I'm five foot uh, 11. I like to lie that I'm six foot, but I'm not. Um, if there was a dunking competition between me and Shaq, Shaq would win, hands down, every time. But what if you guys were like, hey, who, who can reach the moon? Me versus Shaq. The moon, way up high in the sky, who could reach it? Shaq is closer to the moon, but not by much. It does not matter. So if I line you up against someone like, you know, maybe your neighbor or Hitler, you would say, who's the less sinful person? And maybe it's you. Congratulations. Maybe you haven't done some terrible things. Maybe you haven't been in jail or anything. But if we look at the Bible's perspective, you to righteousness, you to God's level of what is good is way beyond the distance of you to the moon. We can't compare ourselves to other people. We have to compare ourselves to Jesus, the only righteous one who has never sinned, who is perfect. And so we see, and maybe there's sins in your heart that you feel right now. There's ways that we have fallen short. Paul talks about this. He says that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. This is Paul, guy who wrote most of the New Testament. He understood that he was a sinner. Well, let, me, let me close with this thought. I was talking to someone recently uh, who, who came to our church and they asked, why do you guys talk about sin so much at your church? They visited and they were confused. I feel like you guys were always talking about sin. Shouldn't we focus more on the joy of God? And I said, absolutely. But look at this story. Who has more joy here? The good people who at the end when the story closes, they were upset, they were angry, or the absolute scum of the earth who found peace in redemption. The Bible tells us that both these groups, in terms of their, of their sin, of their depravity, are one and the same. But only one group found joy because they knew the depth of their sin, of their failure, and that brought them to joy. One of our favorite quotes that we say all the time is from Thomas Watson, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. So let's go from here. Let's, let's eat. Let's thank God. Let's rejoice. Let's invite people in. And let's thank him for the grace that he has given us. And let's remember that power, that power to save. Father, we love you. We thank you that you are a good, gracious God. Lord, I, I pray for, for those of us in here who, who may not know you or who are fighting or are trying to hold on to the past life. And God, I pray that you would just truly help us see the power of your grace. It is more than enough to change the worst of sinners of whom I am, we are the foremost. And Lord, I pray that you would also give us a desire like Jesus had to bring others in, a desire like Levi to bring others in, to see this grace, to taste and see that you are good. We love you, Lord. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.